to put, what an awesome time to, to sing together and just praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I just want to thank all of you here uh, for the opportunity to be able to come and spend the weekend with you. Uh, my, my son and I, Joshua, we're just so appreciative of your hospitality. We're so appreciative of you all welcoming us in, and it has been an, an absolute gift to us, and we're just so thankful to get to be here. Uh, especially want to thank Pastor Chris and Pastor Brandon for trusting me with this wonderful opportunity, and, and thanks, Jay. Pastor Jay. He's been such a dear friend to me and such a gift to me. Uh, thank you for inviting me in here for this special time to share with a very, very special group of men. I'm humbled by the opportunity, but I'm also very excited about this because I believe that God wants to do something with us here um, that's both exciting and scary. Now, this is a men's retreat, so none of us want to admit to being scared, but I believe that we should be because who we've come to encounter this weekend is good, but as C.S. Lewis says, he's not safe. And so we are treading on holy ground just to gather here, just to be here tonight. We are treading on holy ground to gather this weekend. And as you guys have been learning your, in your breakfast together, God has called his men to love a few particular things. God's men love his church. God's men love their wives, and God's men love his holiness. To be transformed, that's what we want. That's why we've come together. We've come together to pursue God's holiness together as men. And if we have any idea of the holiness of God, that can be an incredibly frightening thing. A.W. Tozer once wrote, we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And yet, that is why we've come together this weekend. That is what we've come to talk about. It's a pretty tall order. Thanks for inviting me, Jay. And so I just want to begin tonight by asking God to do what only God can do, because I can't do this. I want to ask Jesus to meet with us tonight. I want to ask Jesus to transform us this week. And I want to ask Jesus to, to, to give us a glimpse of his great glory and his incredible holiness this weekend, so that in the end, all of us can leave here a little more like him, a little more transformed, a little more changed. So let me just begin by praying for our time together. Father God, I just thank you for this group of men. I thank you for our opportunity to to gather and to worship you and praise you and get into your word. And I ask, Father God, that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit now and that you would speak through me, Lord. Speak through me with conviction and with clarity. But Father, in the end, I pray that ultimately Jesus would be exalted and Jesus would be lifted high. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that you would give all of us soft hearts and open hearts to encounter you and meet with you. God, we want, we want a fresh encounter with you. We don't want to leave here the same way that we came in tonight. And so I ask that you would meet with us. Meet with us in power. Meet with us in a fresh way. Show us, Father, where we're in sin. Show us where we've been in rebellion against you and we've gone our own way and done our own thing and we have not 
honor the name of Jesus. I pray that you would pull us back tonight. I pray, Father, that if we've had skewed views of who you are and your majesty and your glory and your honor and and just how holy you are, Father, I, I pray that if we've belittled your character, that tonight would be a course correction. And that we would begin to see you in all of your splendor and majesty and wonder. You are worthy of all of our praise. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The King of kings and Lord of lords. It's you that we come to worship. And so, Father, I pray that we would not confine you or shrink you down into some sort of box. And, Father, help us to be incredibly transparent and humble enough to confess sin. And willing to be open and, and humble and be changed. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you all to think about the last time that you really felt manipulated by somebody. Think about that. The last time somebody was trying to manipulate you or take advantage of you. How do you feel like that? Let that sink in. Can you remember? I don't like that feeling. When it's apparent to me that somebody's trying to manipulate me, it makes me feel like an object, makes me feel used. It makes me feel like somebody's trying to take advantage of me. I feel walked on, disrespected, unvalued. Let's just be honest. I feel flat out angry. I don't like being manipulated. And my guess is that many of you feel those same ways when people are trying to manipulate you. Now, I've probably stirred up a hornet's nest. But I want you to keep those feelings in mind as we consider this passage that we're about to read together. Open up your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. I want to catch you up to speed on what's taking place in the book of 1 Samuel here. That the people of Israel are in desperate need of transformation. The people of Israel need God's touch. They need to experience change. They're in in bad straits right now. The spiritual leader of Israel is a guy named Eli. And Eli, along with his two sons, had proven themselves to be an absolute train wreck when entrusted with any type of power or authority. Eli was blind to everything around him. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had total disregard for all things that were holy, all things of the Lord. They, they even would steal people's sacrifices at the tabernacle so that they could go and grill out with the women that they were picking up at the tabernacle. If you don't believe me, go check out 1 Samuel chapter 2. These guys were not holy men. They were a complete mess, yet there was hope, and here's why. God had decided to raise up a new leader for the people of Israel, Samuel. Even more, the Lord had sent a message of judgment on Eli's house twice now. He would said, Eli, you and your sons are going to be cut off. The only problem is at this point, they're still in power. That they're still leading the people of Israel. So this is kind of a transitional time in the history of Israel. God has raised up Samuel. He's called Samuel. And the word of God is beginning to be let loose through the ministry of Samuel. So some really good things are happening. Yet there's still this problem here with Eli and his two sons. And under their leadership, the people of Israel had developed some very, very skewed views about who is God. Who is God? And it was incredibly skewed as they they lived and they 
tried to worship under this leadership given by Eli and his two sons. They didn't have any understanding of who this God is that they serve and how this God works. And so when we arrive at 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites are at war with the Philistines. Now at this period in their history, it seems like they're always at war with the Philistines. I mean, they always have a new battle brewing, you know. So here they are, that there's two camps basically opposite one another, staring each other down. That's what's taking place. The Israelites are thinking, oh, we got this. We got this because God is on our side. And that's where we come to in 1 Samuel chapter 4. But when they get to battle, check out verse 2. It tells us that 4,000 Israelites died that day. And when they ran away, it appears that the Philistines didn't even bother to pursue them. So for whatever reason, there was time for the people of Israel to kind of regroup before the next wave of battle. And when the troops, they all came back to camp, the elders were confused. They're, they're wondering, well, what just took place here? What just happened? God's on our side, right? I mean, we have God. How could we lose in battle? How could we as God's people not defeat our enemy? Take a look at verse 3. They ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's a really good question. Good question to ask. Unfortunately, none of the people wait to hear God's answer. And they go on in verse 3. They come up with their own answer. They say, well, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come, along, uh, come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, before we go any further with the story, let's just unpack what this Ark of the Covenant deal is. Um, if you watched Indiana Jones, I'm sure you know all about it, so you guys can quit paying attention. But the Ark of the Covenant was a, a chest. It was overlaid with gold. It was a little under four feet long and a little over two feet wide and two feet high. And inside it contained the Ten Commandments. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim. They were heavenly creatures that flanked the throne of Yahweh. And the picture conveyed here is one of absolute, absolute holiness. Holiness. This is where God sat on his throne. That was the visual. That was the picture. It reminded the Israelites that it was from this place that God ruled. And because the Ten Commandments were stored inside of the Ark of the Covenant, it also reminded God's people that he had spoken very specially to them in a unique way with them. And so it's this picture now not only of holiness, but also of intimacy. God has uniquely called out them and initiated a relationship with them. Now, the lid itself was referred to as the mercy seat, and it was sprinkled with blood, splattered with sacrifice, reminding them also of God's great forgiveness. So it's a very, very significant reminder, a very special uh, utensil used in the worship of God. It was a reminder of God's covenant with his people. In fact, in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 22, while speaking to Moses, God said this. He says, there I will meet with you. That's the place. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God said, hey, it's at that place I'm going to speak. So it's a very, very powerful symbol of God's covenant with his people. Now, this ark, it was placed behind a thick curtain in the area of the tabernacle known as the most holy place. 
And it was considered, like I said, the most sacred of all of the utensils used in the worship of Yahweh. This is like the lightning rod of God's holy presence. Now, every good Hebrew boy and girl had heard the story of that famous warrior in their history known as Joshua. God had called Joshua to defeat the city of Jericho just by marching around the city with the Ark of the Covenant in tow. And so when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4, after Israel lost these 4,000 guys in battle, they got it in their head, hey, listen guys, I think it would be a good idea if we just recreate what happened at Jericho. Well, we'll just grab the Ark, go into battle, and it's all good. It's done. We're just going to pick up this thing and bring it in, and and we're going to wipe these guys out. We're just going to mop them up. Foolproof plan. Just add water and stir. Or so they thought. Now, God had not intervened the way that they wanted him to. They had lost 4,000 men, yet they're God's people. God's supposed to be on their side, right? You know, he's supposed to, but as far as they can tell, God didn't even show up. And so now the Israelites have decided, here's what we're going to do. We are going to force God's hand. He's going to have to show up now. He's going to have to show up because all we need to do is we're going to grab this ark. We're going to bring it straight into battle. It's the most holy thing that we can think of. We're going to pick it up and lug it around, and then God has to show up because if we lose the battle with the Ark of the Covenant in tow, then that's going to make God look really bad. And and he doesn't want to look bad, so he's going to have to show up. Now we can't lose, guys. It's like volunteering your wife or your house as the the, the hub for poker night without running past your wife, you know? Um, it's like your son or somebody asking you, hey, uh, can my friend come and spend the night when the friend is standing right there? Well, now you can't say no, right? Because you're going to look like the bad guy. And that's what the Israelites are doing here with God. That they're, that they're trying to bring the ark into battle, and then God will have to give them victory. But let's be very, very clear here. This is not faith. This is superstition. This is... This is manipulation. This is an attempt to take on holiness from the outside, externally, as though that will somehow empower them for victory. What these people need, what they really need in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is transformation. But what they attempt is manipulation. Holiness isn't something that you can just pick up and and carry around for a while and then put it down when your arms get tired. That's not how it works. And even though they, they can bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle, what they can never do is put God in a box, and yet they sure do try. According to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we find two guys, Hophni and Phinehas. Surprise, surprise. You know that These two guys are, care, are leading the pack, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And verse 5 says that when it got to the Israelite camp, all the guys were overjoyed. They're shouting from excitement about what's taking place. Let me just ask you, have you ever been in a group of people who get really fired up over religious things before, but there's no substance to it? That there's no transformation taking place? I mean, I've seen this so many times where people get get fired up. And listen, I'm a pretty intense guy about particular things. I can get pretty emotional, pretty passionate. I'm not saying that intensity or passion or emotion or conviction is a bad thing. So please don't hear me wrong. But 
when that's the totality of our Christian commitment, we're sadly walking around in self-deception. And that same type of thing is happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They're treating the ark like a relic. It's like some religious trinket that offers some sort of magical protection for them. If they just go into battle with it, they're going to be protected from all of their enemies, kind of like the Nazis in Indiana Jones. You You just can't do that. They think that they're invincible, but, but their view of who God is is completely skewed. Yet these guys are pumped. I mean, they're so fired up. They're yelling so loud. Take a look at verse 5, 1 Samuel 4, 5. They're so loud that verse 5 describes it as though the earth is resounding. However, what they didn't realize is that all of their hooping and hollering and yelling had an undesirable effect. Verses 6 through 8 tell us that the Philistine camp could hear them. And and as a result, they got scared. They heard, oh no, the ark of the God of the covenant has has now entered the camp of the people of Israel. And so in verse 9, we see the Philistines telling each other, hey, listen, take courage and be men. In other words, they're saying this, man up, dog. Man up, because these guys are coming in full force. You need to man up, fight like men. That's what they're saying. And all of the hoopla from the Israelites was just locker room material. I mean, they just posted that up there and said, oh, they're hooping? Yeah, and then the Philistines come out swinging, and they punch Israel right in the mouth before Israel even knows what hits them. Take a look. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Did you hear that? 30,000 fell. Verse 11. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now verse 10 describes this as a very great slaughter. Same word that's used in, in Hebrew, um, used of the, the plagues in Egypt. I mean, it was, it was huge. They suffered heavy, heavy losses. 30,000 people died, including Hophni and Phinehas. And what happened there, I mean, it makes like Lexington and, and Concord look like paintball. I mean, this was, this was huge. Moreover, they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And I think that we can all safely say that their plan to twist God's arm did not work that they that the people didn't care to know god they just wanted to control him they didn't want to follow jesus they just wanted to use him and i just want to point out tonight men. i just want to point out that transformation will never happen in our lives so long as we want to be in control of god it will never happen so long as we think that we're the ones in control. That's not how transformation works. You know, our God is, is holy, which means he's not only spotless and pure and dwells in unapproachable light, but it also means that our God is transcendent. He's completely other than us. He's the creator. We are the creatures. He's not a lucky charm. He's not a rabbit's foot. We can't stick him in our pocket. We can't use God. He's holy. And so long as we think that we can use him or manipulate him to our own ends, we will never experience the transformation that we are desperately needing and longing for. And we can't play around with him. We we don't play with him or this idea of holiness. Listen, 
Holiness is not... Okay, Jesus isn't a cable package. All right, and holiness isn't like an upgrade. That, that's not how this works. You, you, don't, you don't get to just upgrade to, hey, now I'm going to just add on holiness to this Jesus deal that I'm going to kind of, you know, put one toe in and dink around with from time to time. T- take a minute and just evaluate yourself as you're considering how you interact with God. How do you treat him? Well, what is your view of God, honestly, truly? Do you think that you can control him? Do you think that you can manipulate him? Do you think that you can dictate to God the best way for him to work in your life? Because if so, we're missing out on the transformation that we need. It can't happen that way. We can't tell him how he's going to work. We can't tell him what he needs to do. See, he's God and we're not. That's the bottom line. And if only we could begin to see him for who he is as king of kings and lord of lords and majestic and wonderful and powerful and true. The, the one who's existed from eternity past and will exist forever. The, the one who has all power in his hands. The one who bled and died out of incredible, infinite love for his people to ransom them back to himself and, and win them and seal them and make them his own for eternity. He, he, he's the one who rides on the clouds and bends the heavens like, like in a bow, like a strong man. I mean, he, he's the one where the, the, the earth is is laid bare at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. I mean, do we have any conception? Do we have any idea at all at the holiness and majesty and power of our God? He's incredible beyond comprehension. How, how do you view him? Because if you don't view him like that, you're not viewing the God of the Bible. You're playing with something else, but it's not Jesus Christ. It's not the King of Kings. If you don't view him as almighty God, then then something's wrong. Something's missing. Now, the, the battle was happening about 20 miles west of town. And so all of the people who didn't go into battle with the Philistines, they're, they're waiting. They're wanting to hear word back about what's happening. And Eli, according to verse 13, is he's sitting on the side of the road with his heart trembling for the ark of God. See, he knew that it was a bad idea to send the ark of the covenant into battle in the first place. He knew that that wasn't the way to do things. But he's too passive to put his foot down and say, no, this is not what we're going to do. He was too passive and too weak to be a man and say, well, this is not how we're going to approach God. And so in verse 13, he's sitting there, he's waiting, he's worrying, and he should have stood up and used the authority that God had entrusted to him in his position, but he didn't, and a man runs into town. His clothes are torn, there's dirt on his head. Anybody who can see him can tell that he's bringing bad news from the front lines. But Eli can't see. Verse 15 says he's completely blind at this point. Anyway, this guy apparently runs right past Eli, goes on down the road, doesn't even stop and tell Eli what's happening. But in verse 17, after hearing the uproar from the crowd in town as they hear the news, in verse 17, this guy comes back and he fills Eli in. And listen to how he breaks the news. It it just goes from bad to worse. Verse 17, Israel has fled before the Philistines. Oh, no. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And, and the ark of God has been captured. 
Listen, I'm, I'm sure that the anxiety that Eli was feeling was just going from bad to worse to worse as he's listening to this report. Israel fled? That's terrible. There, there's been a great defeat? Oh, oh no. Oh, no. My, my sons were killed in battle? The ark's been captured? Oh, God. I'm sorry. And at this point, Eli can't take it anymore. And he literally falls out of his seat. He's so shocked. He's so horrified by all the news, by everything that's taken place. His chair tips backward, and verse 18 tells us that because he was so heavy, he broke his neck and he died. And not only did Eli fall off his, off his chair, but his entire dynasty fell at the same moment. That both his sons died in the same day. God's message of judgment on Eli's house had finally come to pass. But the chapter doesn't end there. And almost as an epilogue to everything that's happened so far in chapter 4 is a little story recorded in verses 19 through 22. Eli's daughter-in-law... Phineas's wife was pregnant and she was close to full term when all of this took place. And in one day she lost her brother-in-law, her father-in-law, and her husband. And when all of that was capped off with the news that the ark of God had also been captured by the Philistines, she went into labor. You can imagine why. I mean, it's kind of shocking news in one day. My whole family's been wiped out and the ark of the covenant is gone. You know, giving birth even today with all of our medical technology can be kind of dicey. I remember when Josh was being born and my, my wife having to, you know, they almost did an emergency C-section on her. And they're like, Dad, and they're throwing me scrubs and say, put these on. Yeah, it's dicey at times. 3,000 years ago, it was often fatal to give birth to a baby. And the midwives are trying to encourage this gal by telling her, hey, listen, you're giving birth to a son. That's supposed to be good news. But instead of being encouraged, she named her son Ichabod. Ichabod, which means that the glory has, come on, departed. The glory has departed because the glory had departed from Israel. The ark of God had been captured. Then she died. Cheery, huh? Now, there's an interesting play on words here that we miss entirely because we're reading this in English. Now, Eli fell off of his chair and he broke his neck because he was heavy, or in Hebrew, he was kabod. Now, that, that uh, Hebrew word kabod, it can mean something that's literally heavy, like Eli was, or it can mean weightiness or glory. Kabod. And that's why Eli's daughter named her son Ichabod as she was dying. The weightiness of God's glory had departed Israel. I mean, this is a people. This is a people in desperate need of God's transforming work. Desperate. Desperate to be changed. Desperate. And yet, Ichabod. Glories departed. They were sinful. They profaned all things holy. They thought that they could control God and make God do what they wanted. They, they thought that holiness was something external, that they, they didn't have any bearing on their own hearts or in them. That there, was, there was no glory. There was no sense of God's transforming work. No power. There was no passion to know him and make him known. There, there was no sense of his presence, no abiding in his love, no understanding of his mercy, no appreciation of his majesty. Ichabod! 
There was empty religiosity, but there was not ongoing, transforming relationship with the living God. And it should be noted that the glory had not departed because the ark had been captured. The ark was captured because the glory had departed. And listen, I am sure to the Israelites at the time, I mean, at that moment, it must have felt like God had done away with his covenant with his people. I mean, it must have felt like he wasn't there, like God didn't care, as though God was just done with them, like he'd moved on. Like, you guys are so messed up, so sinful, that I'm just done with you, I'm just going to move on, and the glory's departed. And I would just suspect that there may be a couple of men in here tonight, maybe maybe many of you, I don't know, who who could possibly feel like Ichabod should be tattooed on your shoulder. The glory has departed. You know that you're in need of God's transforming work. You know that you need Jesus to meet with you tonight. You, you know that you need his holiness. You know you need his presence. You know that you need his glory. But it's like he's departed. And you're pretty sure as to why. Because you've been in sin. But because it's you've been going away and doing other stuff with other things and, and your heart hasn't been adjusted and, and oriented to Jesus Christ and instead you're just wandering away in sin and doing your own thing and, and being God of your own existence. But now it's kind of hard to hear him. And it seems like he's pretty far away and he may not be coming around anytime soon. And maybe, maybe he's even done with I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you've been in, a, in an Ichabod season or not. But if you are in one, or if you have been in one, you know what I'm talking about. It's when those seasons when it feels like your prayers go nowhere in particular. You've tried being in control and it doesn't work. Um, you've occasionally toyed with the idea of picking up a few holy habits, but you know that God's transforming work has never really taken root in your life because, honestly, you're just as messed up now as you ever have been. And if that's even remotely close to where you're at tonight, if there's any hint in your mind that that perhaps God has just kind of cut his losses when it comes to you and moved on to somebody else, moved on to somebody more faithful, moved on somebody that is going to bear fruit and and follow him and whatever, I, I would like to make a suggestion if you're feeling distant from God at all. I just want to make a suggestion that perhaps the glory hasn't departed, perhaps... Perhaps the opposite would be true. Perhaps God is doing something in you that you just, just haven't seen quite yet. In, in a famous or fabulous uh, little commentary by, uh, by Ray, Dale Ralph Davis on, on 1 Samuel, he, he, he says that this passage forces us to face two realities. And I, I love this, so I'll just read these to you. This, this is from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, first of all, God will go to any length to keep us from carrying on a false relationship with him. God will go to any length to keep us from carrying on a false relationship with him. And secondly, God will even allow us to feel like he's departed if it will awaken us to the sort of God that he really is. He will allow us to feel as though he's departed if that's what it's going to take to wake us up to see who he is. See, the people thought that they could not lose in battle. 
with the ark of God in their camp, and they'd begun to place their hope in an object instead of in a holy God. They'd begun to see God as an object to be used instead of the Lord who needs to be worshipped. They had no understanding of his majesty, no appreciation of his holiness, and God was not willing to allow them to stay there. He wasn't willing to let them stay in that spot, carrying on a false relationship with him, because he wants his people to be Kick this up for me, Micah. Yet holiness. Holiness is an inward transformation of the heart that only begins when we see God rightly. See, God will go to any length so that we won't remain in a place where we fail to see him for who he is. He won't let us stay there. You know, God could have brought victory to the Israelites when they carried the ark of God into battle. He could have brought them victory, but it would have left, left the Israelites thinking that God was some kind of lucky charm, some kind of rabbit's foot, some kind of genie in a bottle instead of the free, sovereign, loving, perfect, holy God. And God did not want that. God could not allow that. And so God, in his mercy, let the people be disappointed. He let the people get mad that he didn't come through for them. He let people feel distant. And he let the pagan nations think whatever they would rather than allow his people to go on not truly knowing who he is. Men, God will let us go through seasons where we feel as though he'll never come through. And we're waiting, we're waiting, wondering, where are you, God? Where are you? I'm crying out to you. You feel so distant. You feel so far away. Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? I I don't feel you. I don't see you. I, I don't know where you're at. God will let us go through those seasons to awaken us to who he is. He'll let us wait in that place for years if that's what it takes. He'll leave us feeling alone. But I believe that 1 Samuel chapter 4 teaches us that that he does so so that we won't worship him anymore as useful or handy in a tight spot or, or, or helpful to us or some commodity to be used. But instead so that we will begin to worship him as worthy and holy and majestic and true. He wants us to worship him rightly to interact with him as he is and not as something that we've made him to be. He so loves you. Get this, he so loves you. He's not willing to allow you to stay in that place where you view him as some sort of commodity instead of the eternal God. When the ark of God was captured, it seemed as though God had abandoned them. It seemed as though he, he, he was weak seemed as though God didn't care, seemed as though he wasn't upholding the the character of his own name. It it, it seemed as though his people were no longer in some sort of special relationship with him. Ichabod, the glories departed. But God was up to something. He was doing something. That's the irony of this entire chapter. That's the irony of 1 Samuel chapter 4. The day that Ichabod was born, the day that the glory had departed, was the day that God was taking decisive action to uphold the glory and holiness of his own name. See, the day that Ichabod was born, that transformation that Israel so desperately needed, that transformation was just now beginning to take place. First of all, God was ensuring the purity of his worship. 
He was ensuring the purity of his worship. Back in chapter 2, we see that the tabernacle had become a joke. Hophni and Phinehas were, were stealing people's sacrifices to eat them for themselves, and they were having sex with women who worked at the entrance of the tabernacle. It was all messed up. And God was not going to allow them to profane his worship any longer. No, no. I'm holy, he says. And you will worship me as holy. Secondly, God was ensuring the truthfulness of his own word. Twice he had sent a message of judgment on the house of Eli. Two times. You're going to fall for the sin. You're going to be wiped out. But it had not yet come to pass. But on this day, God's word proved to be true. God was saying, my word is true. Third, God was ensuring a right relationship with his people. He didn't want his people to misunderstand who he is. And so he worked in a way that took his people by complete surprise. He didn't meet any of their expectations. He didn't work how they expected him to or how they, they thought he should in the box that they had shoved him in. He, he didn't work in that way. Work completely in, in another way. They weren't expecting it. They thought that he was, he was failing them while all the time he was ensuring that they could be in a right relationship with him. He let them experience disappointment. He let them experience pain, even death, so that they would know him as he really is the God of glory, the one whom angels bow down to in worship, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Alpha and Omega, first and last, immortal, invisible, God only wise. We must see him as he is. How do you see God? How do you view him? And do the actions of your life reflect the answers that you give? Because if the actions of your life do not reflect the answer that you're giving, then let me suggest that perhaps your view of God may be somewhat skewed. Holiness is that inward transformation of the heart that begins when we start to see God rightly as he is. It will never come as we attempt to relate to him in any other way. No, 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 no. The, the pursuit of holiness begins with us capturing a glimpse of his holiness. See, we're not made holy until we see that he's holy. We're not transformed until we see how glorious he is. The problem is we oftentimes don't want to see him as he is. We want to make God into something else. We want to fit him into a box. This is the age-old problem of fallen humanity. Happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Happened in the life of Jesus. It continues to happen today. I mean, think about Jesus. People wanted Jesus to be something that he wasn't. They wanted him. They wanted to interact with him differently than, than he was. They wanted to force him and, and, and have him be something that he wasn't. The Jews thought the Messiah's, the Messiah should be a political leader. And, and, and they wanted him to, to lead them out of oppression uh, from under a corrupt Roman government. Now, they thought that he should throw off Roman occupation. That's what they, what they wanted of Jesus. They thought he should reign as king, not in their hearts, but on a literal throne. The Pharisees, they thought, well, you just need to be more legalistic. That's what you need. Be more legalistic, Jesus, and then we can get along. The zealots think, hey, listen, Jesus, you need to be more political. If you just were more political, then we could hang. Then you and I would have something if you were more political like I am. We're trying to recreate God in our own image. That's what we're doing here. The, the government officials said, you know, don't be so polarizing. The, the zealots say, be more political, please. 
The Pharisees say, just, you know, hold to more law. Nobody wants to interact with Jesus on his own terms. Nobody wants to deal with him as he really is. Everybody wants to control him. Everybody wants to use him. They don't see him for who he is. I mean, even his disciples. Bless him. Even the disciples. They don't like all this talk about Jesus dying on on a cross. What, What are you talking about, Jesus? I mean, we have Peter rebuking Christ when Christ is saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to save a lost and dying world by my sacrifice on the cross. And Peter's like, oh, Jesus, don't do that. What are you talking about? You can't die. Don't do that. And what did Jesus do? What did he do? He, He didn't allow people to carry on a false relationship with him. He did not meet their expectations. He allowed himself to be arrested. He put some poor dude's ear back on after Peter chops it off with a sword. I mean, he willingly goes to the cross. He takes the whippings. He takes the scourgings. He takes the crown of thorns. He takes people mocking him and spitting in his face and racking him on the back with weeds. He takes all of that. He takes the nails. And what does he do? What does Jesus do? surely, surely his followers looked at each other after Jesus died on the cross and said, Ichabod, the Lord's dead. The Lord has departed. I'm sure they're wondering, what's going on, Jesus? Why did you do this? Why didn't you let us fight for you? Well, why'd you insist on going to Jerusalem? Well, why didn't you run away from them when they came for you, Jesus? Well, why didn't you defend yourself, Jesus, when they accused you? If only they could see three days into the future, you know? If only they could see what was going to come. If only they could see that it was on the cross that Jesus Christ satisfied the Father's wrath against sin. If only they could see that the cross was the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. If only they could see that that it was this Ichabod moment, it was the cross when Jesus dealt the decisive blow against sin, Satan, death, and hell. I mean, if only they could see that the, the implications of the cross and how Jesus was king in that entire time, that entire moment, he was doing something there that they could not see. He was doing something that they didn't know. And they're all asking, Jesus, why? You've left us abandoned. You've left us alone. You've left us wandering. Don't you love us? Don't you care for us? Don't you see us here? You seem so far away. Why, Jesus? Why? Well, why did you do that? And I believe, men. I believe. Whispering through the pages of Scripture is the answer. Even all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Jesus is saying, because I want you to truly know me. I want you to truly know me. So then... You can be transformed. Let me pray for us. And we'll continue our journey through 1 Samuel tomorrow. Father, I'm so guilty of trying to relate to you in in ways that aren't true to your character. I've tried to redefine you And make you something that you're not. And Father, I pray that you would forgive me. And I pray that you would forgive all of us. For not approaching you in the way that we ought. 
we are, Father, treading on holy ground. And Lord, as we pursue your holiness, I pray that it would begin by us seeing your holiness. Help us to see how holy you are. Help us to see how glorious, how wonderful, how powerful and majestic you are. God, forgive us for trying to manipulate you and trying to control you and use you to our own ends. Father, instead of trying to use you, I pray that you would use us. And instead of trying to recreate you in our image, Father, would you instead change us into yours? And for this group of men that are here this weekend and we're, we're looking at this idea of what does it mean to pursue your holiness. Father, I pray that you would show us, to change us. Help us not to interact anymore with you in ways that aren't consistent with the glory of your own name. So Father, we now bow before you and just confess you are holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty who was worship you in your holiness. Give us greater